you can build content pretty cheaply with freelancers and nice operations. Yeah. And then really focus on, on your product. What problems are you solving? That's the sweet spot for not just this PLG growth, but I think anybody, like if you know what your user's pain is, write about it and show them how you solve it. I think that's really the, the sweet spot for us. Like it's not, it's not that secret. People like come up and I get these founders that DM me like, what is it? What is it that you're like doing differently? It's like, we're not doing that much differently. We're just literally listening to people and then showing them how our product solves what they need help with. And if you do that, like things kind of fall into place. This episode is sponsored by Ahrefs, who I'm so proud to have as the very first sponsor of this podcast. I use their product literally 10 times a day for keyword research, backlink building and tracking my content as it moves up the rankings. If you're interested, you can check them out for free. Just Google Ahrefs Webmaster Tools to find a suite of free tools for auditing your site, analyzing backlinks, and discovering new keywords. It's genuinely worth checking out. It's an absolutely dope SEO tool, and they support creators like me to keep doing shit like this for free. They're such an awesome company. Okay, enough. On to the episode. Hello and welcome to the How The Fuck podcast. In seven short months, Jacob Rudnick and the Scribe team have grown their traffic from zero to 30,000 monthly visitors. Their efforts have driven so many signups and revenue that their monthly budget for new content shifted from 20 to 30 new articles a month to over 100 a month. In this episode, Jacob walks us through this journey from building backlinks to publishing schedules and all of the what not to do mistakes that he and his team have been through as well as those that he learned whilst working as a senior content strategist at G2. Jacob's background is in journalism and content strategies, so we deep dive things like how to choose what to write about, how user research can help you iterate your content strategy to find what really will drive revenue for your company, as well as how to write reader-friendly, well-researched content that Google and your reader will love. None of this podcast is about traffic for traffic's sake, we're looking at how to drive real business growth and quickly with SEO as the primary distribution channel. That's what makes this episode so special. Jacob tells us how revenue results are helping him iterate the content strategy and how SEO is being used to unlock some serious value at Scribe. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you did, come over to thefuck.com, that's T-H-F-X-C-K.com to get the full written case study with additional hints and tips so that you can copy this strategy. There's also now 19 other SEO case studies that you can unlock over there for £8 a month. Hi, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Doing great, Ben. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Okay, so you've got a really great story that we're going to deep dive today, which is growing in seven months from zero traffic to 30k traffic, which is no easy feat, especially in like the topics that you've covered. Could you tell us just some quick ones to start off with? What did that look like in seven months? How many blogs were you putting out a month? And what kind of budget did you have going into this? Yeah, so our strategies even change yeah, over the course of seven months, uh, I'm sure we'll get into. But in the beginning, we're just trying to to get some content published, trying to figure out our processes, get writers and things. So that uh, was in the 20 to 30 articles a month range. So it wasn't a clean 20, 20, 20 or anything. It was a, a big bunch of content. Once we got the CMS and things up and running, we had kind of a backlog of content and and 20 to 25 articles over the summer. Now that we're heading into the fall, we've actually ramped up pretty substantially north of somewhere between 60 to 100 articles a month as we've kind of proven out the ROI of our content. You know, once you have the, the buy-in from the, the head of marketing and the CEO, and you've proven that your content's just impacting the bottom line positively, uh, much easier to 
double, yeah. triple down. So yeah, it was in that range. We published right around 350 total articles on the blog over seven months. So it comes nice. to 50 a month, but yeah, definitely been hasn't been a, a linear 50 each month. Yeah. Someone asked this to me the other, the other day, actually, they said that they had a bunch of content written and they were like, shall I drip it like one a day or shall I just do it all in one go? So what, what's your point of view on that? I mean, we definitely did that. We, as I mentioned, there's like some, some nuance here, but the, we, we had this big mountain of content that wasn't getting published. And the push was like, why isn't it? And everything needs to go slowly. You know, we, we, we need to have all these edits and the, the push was, do we really? And it's like, well, maybe we don't have, I've actually never published this much content all at once. And we just did it and it was fine. Everything worked out fine. There's a little bit of sluggishness maybe on indexing, but we basically had no content anyway. So I think that would have been there no matter what. Yeah. So I had to do a little bit of work on, you know, manually indexing, using our 10 index requests every day, very like sparingly yes. and trying to get things going. But beyond that, there was no issues. We published something like 70 articles in a week or so, and it was fine. So I think honestly, from Google's perspective, it was like, oh, look at this website. They have a lot of content. Let's get things indexed. And we, we saw just a really, really quick growth. Like the graph looks great in June and July as content, the, as Google really indexed the content. So I, I wouldn't be scared of that at all. I think content calendars, mm -hmm. when you're looking at organic evergreen content, like Google and your readers don't care when you published, what is X, how to write X, whatever. They're just looking for it on Google. So the faster you can get something up and index and ranking, the better. So don't wait yeah. on a content calendar, just do it. Perfect. That's a great example. You're actually in a kind of unique position to answer the question if how long does it take to start getting traffic on your blog? So if you release them all like 70 in a week and there was nothing before that, when was the first time you started getting traffic? Yeah, within two weeks, we saw a couple articles with traffic, right? But like a few organic visitors versus like meaningful traffic, you know, so month one, I think was somewhere under just under a thousand visitors for 70 articles, which looks pretty paltry. But once yeah. you accelerate into July, I was on vacation when stuff like really took off. So it was exciting. My boss like, get off your computer. I'm like, it's the, but it's actually working. Yeah. We went from like a thousand to three or 4,000 up to 10, 15,000 really quickly. So we saw those jumps in month three for us. There's a couple, again, technical things on the indexing. We moved subdomains. So there was like some stuff that probably slowed us down a little bit, but it, you can see that traffic in month two and then definitely in month three and like pretty meaningful traffic. That's when we were able to start seeing signups and revenue generated as well. So that's cool, yeah, month three for us, but you can do it faster if you get everything right from the go. So month three, you're getting around 15,000 and you're starting to yeah. see impact instantly on the signups and things. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely. It's very easy to say where the change came from. If you see an uptick in signups and, and that kind of thing, definitely. that's really cool. Yeah. Let's, let's dig into that. I want to get into like the ROI and how you track that a little bit later. Just so a little bit more context, what's the size of your content team? Did you use freelancers? Oh yeah. And what was your budget for, for this? Yeah. Subscribe so in general, we're right around 40 employees overall marketing teams, about eight. It's, it was me to start. And in the kind of before the push, we hired Lauren, my content editor, manager, Jack of all trades. So she handles the brief writing through the publishing and a lot of the optimization as well. So there's the two of us in-house handling strategy through publishing and optimization. Then we work with a bunch of freelancers. We, before I started, there was an agency that was kind of handling that stuff. Okay. Mm -hmm. They were doing an okay job. Uh, so that's why I got hired, but we use all freelance writers and then the two of us in-house. Nice. Oh, awesome. and then, and budget. Yeah. We, we were in the $10,000 a month. That was kind of like, I don't know if there was much, how much rhyme or reason there was to that, but in that 30 articles or so we were around 10, 10 grand a month and that scaled 
as we've increased, you know, that, that doesn't get us a hundred articles anymore. We've kept the kind of the art per article budget under $400 typically uh, around like on average. So some core pieces of content that are going to be really impactful from a traffic and signup perspective will go higher. Some other stuff that we, you know, are either testing or don't feel like the impact is there. We can go a little bit lower with freelancers. So we've got a range of writers, different costs. We try to keep the quality as high as possible. I've done some stuff through communities and LinkedIn to get a big network of writers so we can um, kind of plug and play over over time and really trying to find the best quality while keeping the price not as low as possible while maintaining that price, right? We, we still want to pay writers what they're worth, but it's finding that sweet spot. And I think I just saw your post on LinkedIn today, but you didn't do backlink building as part of this yet, or did you? So we did do backlink building, but I wouldn't say, I'd say that what we've done has been a lot different than what your average company would consider backlink building. So I've never sent where, like, this will be my little tagline of backlink building. I've never sent a cold email. I've never said, Ben, I have this article, your content looks great, but it could use my link. Like I've never done that. I mean, I've, I've worked on teams. I've done that in the past, but we haven't done that at Scribe. We built links intentionally to specific articles using pre-existing relationships, communities and relationships I've forged online, basically. So LinkedIn, Slack communities, and then people I know, basically. So doing a lot of link building that way. So instead of sending a thousand emails to get 20 responses, to get three links, we're just sending emails and Slack messages to people that I know are link building already. People I know that understand the, the benefit of link building and have a reason to work with me. So we've kind of minimized all that extra work because it's only two of us in house. Like there's, we just don't have the time to send all those other emails and follow up and do all that. Makes sense. Yeah. And are those backlinks, are they from sites that you know are relevant or do you just, you, at the moment, you're just going for like authoritative sites in general? Yeah. So there's some that we know, but we're not like, I don't say Salesforce is the site that we're targeting. Let's go find someone at Salesforce. Like I'll go wherever we have warm lead, whether that's going to lead builder I know, or somebody, you know, a relationship that I have, we can usually find some content that makes sense. As long as someone's in, we are in a good space as a general use like productivity efficiency tool. Anybody that creates documentation at work can use Scribe. So I can go to any niche, basically. I can go to sales and marketing and operations, a dev even, blog. And as long as it has authority and some talk about documentation or processes or workflows, I can find a spot for one of our links. So basically it's finding someone with a good site who wants to work with me and then I'll, I'll make a link work from there. Nice. Okay. Okay, perfect. So I wanted to take a step back from the, the details and go to the beginning of this, which is why you chose to invest in SEO as a channel for growth at all. What was the strategy behind all this? Yeah, so that decision comes before me that I'm, I'm the hire that is the decision right there. So that comes to our two co-founders and the head of marketing. And I've you know gotten a lot of this from the interview process and through. So I'm definitely paraphrasing and I'm a secondhand source here, but basically subscribe and we, we turn a workflow into a document. So you record something you record the work while you're doing it. It spits out a URL with all your steps. So it's a screenshot and a bunch of written steps. And so that URL can be an internal document that only your team can see, or you can embed it into a FAQ page, a blog, something else. And so scribes themselves become these individual little how-to like web pages that are actually like we've optimized them for SEO. So if someone's creating this public scribe, it can rank, it can, you know, be it can be that we have scribes that rank number one for search position. So it's a tool itself that's creating content. So it's a kind of like, it's, it's just a, it's a no brainer to do SEO when you have a tool that's creating all these mini pages all over the place. So I think that's the start of it. 
And the other side, again, this is a, I mean, it's a B2B tool, but it's it kind of treats its marketing for it. it actually works better if you think of it more like a B2C tool, like anybody can use it, use it, you know, it's a free tool. So we, we've had a lot of traction in blogs, lists where people are, can sign up much quicker than like an enterprise driven tool or like an enterprise sales cycle type tool. So I think from those two perspectives, we know that people will sign up pretty quickly from this content. We've seen that since publishing. And on the other side, just having really high quality SEO and site quality will help our product led growth through scribe, the creation of scribes and pages and things. So I think it was twofold there. And that's kind of the answer I got coming into being hired. So yeah, yeah. That makes that's, sense. That's it. it makes sense. And it's such a, I, if anyone listening hasn't used or checked out scribe, like it's scribehow.com. And it's, I think as soon as I got it, I was like, as soon as I started using it, I was like, I can see the use case for me straight away. And I, I think everyone coming in would probably see something for them, right? So like multi-purpose in terms of creating how-to guides for anything instantly. That's really cool that they can rank for SEO themselves. They almost scale out. It's like built-in growth. It's, I mean, that's super interesting. 100%. And it's, I mean, it works in the, we haven't touched on it, but it, it's its own backlink play as well. Like before I started, mm -hmm. you know, I ascribe how marketing, head of marketing, DMs me and asks me if I want to have an interview, whatever. And I run the site through Ahrefs and UN has linked to one of our scribes. They built nice. like a how to do something and for UN employees. So we have like, we have backlinks from Washington Post, UN, and we haven't built those at all. Those are just people using our product and then embedding or linking to those throughout. So I'm, I'm in a great spot where the SEO is easier because of our tool, but at the same time, doing SEO really well, will make everything more impactful for our tool. So we've got this great flywheel going. That's cool. So before you had any content at all, you, you had a pretty good like domain authority. And yeah, we we're in the 37, 38 range. So it was like definitely not zero. You know, I talk, I get these DMs and things from company founders who are asking, should I do content? Should I do links, whatever? And they're coming in with a two domain authority, five links, you know, maybe they've done two press releases or something. And so they're gonna have an uphill battle. I got through that first stage really easily. So now we've had really good growth and it's accelerated through manual efforts, but we would have seen pretty solid growth without me even being hired or doing anything. That's good. Okay. So would you, if, if you were coming in with zero domain authority, what would you have done differently at the beginning? Yeah, we would definitely have had to get a little bit scrappier. We did do some of this, like we got onto every review site, right? Like we already were on G2, but there's 20 knockoff G2s. They'll give you a, a nice homepage link and they've got pretty solid domain authority and you know, could do all those. So like a lot of our link building is relationship based, which sometimes includes like, I'll, I'll add somebody else's link to one of our blogs or to a guest post or something in exchange. Right. So, but it works a lot easier when you have a 70 domain authority, like we do now, but when we had a 37, it was much harder to do whether, you know, people would either say no or ask for two or three links for one. So just doing some scrappy stuff, like getting onto yeah, the, the software lists are good, but you, you know, you know, all those like free sites that you can kind of get listed and get like bump the domain authority while not really doing anything for SEO. I would have spent more time on that stuff that doesn't matter, but it does matter for link exchanges and things. I would have had to waste more time doing that. Basically, I could skip that step for us, get straight to 40 and then start doing the stuff that really actually impacts the business. Yeah, nice. Yeah, because coming from a, a zero, it just doubles the amount of time, the payback period that you're going to get. Um, totally. Yeah. We did some PR as well. Like before I started, we had a PR agency and we had a, a series A announcement, a couple of new product launches and things. So we had some stuff that was pretty natural to be linked to, but we would have had to either double down on that or again, do this like scrappy stuff that doesn't pay off in the long run. Nice. Do you get the, the tech crunch announcement? 
of your yeah <laughs> i think we i think we have a tech crunch announcement somewhere at least somewhere like maybe a tech radar or something like that but we we definitely had a couple of those but we stopped wait we stopped spending the budget there and got to use it on more impactful things because we have this nice product-led seo going on nice that's ideal okay so so one of the things i'm excited to have you in particular on on the podcast because you're not just an seo strategist but you're like a content strategist and you've got like a long history of teaching in journalism and being a head of content and all these kind of cool things. So I wanted to ask you specifically, I guess, about how you decided which topics to go after. How does that relate back to your product? How do you design the whole content part of this? Yeah, for sure. So I'm definitely more, like you said, I'm more on the content side, like SEO. There are SEOs that get paid a lot less and know a lot more about technical SEO. That's not my bread and butter. Like, I think I'm I'm fine there, but that's that's not where I came in. I would come in as a as a journalist and a storyteller, and I figured no. out the SEO side to make the storytelling work for me. So kind of coming in from a different standpoint than a lot of SEOs. What we chose, so right off the bat, we took the personas that the marketing team was already focusing on and started to write content around that. That's been effective, but not as effective as some of the the stuff, the choices we've made since. So writing, if we know that employee onboarding, right, every employee needs guides for how to set up their 401k, how to log into Salesforce, how to, you know, so we thought that that would be the move. And we do see a, a good amount of traffic from those type of blogs. And we see some signups, but the the use case driven content has just been a little bit less effective because you're typically like one step removed from the core of your tool. Like someone looking for a great employee onboarding does need documentation, but documentation is one of 20 things. So there's 20 things for someone to focus on, right? There's 20 problems and we're just 5% of that. Whereas if I'm writing about standard operating procedures, and that's one of our key, like, like real use cases, that's persona agnostic, anybody writing a job aid or a standard operating procedure can use scribe because it spits out a standard operating procedure for them instantly. So something like that, if you just think of like, how much of this article does our tool solve? It's almost 100%, like how to write an SOP. Scribe can just write an SOP for you and maybe you need a little bit of formatting guidance. So when we stick closer to what our product does, that's been really effective on the signup side. Same thing like when we look at the features that our product offers, so taking screenshots, editing screenshots, screenshots to PDF, highlighting screenshots, things like that. When people have a problem, whether it's, again, writing a type of document or how to edit a document. If Scribe does that thing, we see really good signup rates. So how do we choose those? Again, we started with the personas. We did a little bit around our core tool. Then once we saw the traction, really working with the writing documentation, we really threw, threw a lot of resources over there. What we've had more recently, so it was like, here's what we think we were going to expect. And then we got more feedback from users, both reading the articles and either converting to users or not. But then we heard from more people on social. We saw more emails who were doing the product marketer on our team was doing more user interviews. We started to use words from those, the language, the what problems are we solving? What we're using instead? We answered all those questions with blogs because if they're solving that problem, other people would be too. And recently our team ran a product market fit survey or user survey. We just got that at scale. So suddenly I had 200 user interviews, basically all in a nice spreadsheet that I could sift through and say, this looks like an article. This looks like an article. I've never seen that term before. Okay, there is keyword volume over here. So we just really were able to build out a, a more complete content strategy just by talking to our users. So that's been our best thing to do. I would recommend doing that as quickly as possible if you're launching a, like a content strategy. That's so cool. So would you back those, the things you found in the user interviews, you back them into keywords or do you just write them? You know, I know, I know people are talking about zero keywords and how secretly they can 
bring you traffic. Would you do that or are you sticking to the keyword traffic place? We definitely are in Ahrefs every day looking at the keyword volumes. It's picking our spots with the zero keyword volume, zero search volume keywords. So like standard operating procedures is, there's like 20 different names for standard operating procedures in the business world. People call them like very similar things. So once we've identified more and more of those through this survey, and that's allowed us to go kind of reverse engineer that that term, see if other people are using it. And usually there's some traffic there. What we found with SOPs is there were 20 to 25 articles that had keyword volumes. What is it? How to write it? What's the format? SOPs for marketing or something like that. And so once we had that like little playbook for SOPs, we could go to each different type of documentation, job aids, things like that. And run the exact same playbook. If they were asking it for SOPs, they're probably asking it for job aids. So we have these nice little clusters that align pretty well. And we would prioritize by the keyword volumes. But if we saw that, let's just say like job aid templates had zero search volume, but for every other cluster, if there was search volume for it, like it's probably there. We're just, we just haven't, it hasn't been written before. So we, we just prioritize, we did prioritize by the, the volume, but with a little bit of like, with obviously thinking about the intent, like a template is going to be a higher sign up rate than a, what is article. So we did a little bit of mashing those two things, but use that survey as a, both to find new keywords that we hadn't unearthed. And then also things that looked like zero search volume, but really probably had some, some volume there. Nice. It was a little bit of a mix. Cool. It's so useful as a content SEO person to have 20 different ways to say what you do, I guess, as well. Yeah, we're definitely lucky there. And I mean, as you mentioned, like, it's not just those SOPs, it's also FAQs, and it's how to write like, product documentation and things. So I, again, very much a, an SEO person sweet spot that there's so many synonyms, and we're grabbing from a lot of different categories that already exist. So we get to kind of like steal demand for other things, and yeah. just show people a product that had never existed before. So definitely one of the fun things of like, category creation, if you can figure that out. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. I keep hearing people say things like, you can never generate demand with search. But I think capturing someone else's demand and showing them an innovative product, I, in my opinion, that is generating new demand for a product, although you're kind of capturing. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely like the Refine Labs playbook, right? That is like taken over marketing LinkedIn is that like demand capture is SEO and demand creation is social in other places. And I think that that's a, a fair thing to some extent, but like when you're thinking about who's, which talking heads are explaining that, like they're coming from marketing agencies where marketing agencies do look like a commodity, you know, when you don't know what you're differentiating against. And so like fighting that SEO battle, like people need a marketing agency, they're just looking for a cheap option or like the best option. There's nothing in between. They don't want that mediocre option. And so like, if you go to CRM, it is just going to be the man capture. Everyone in business knows what a CRM is. But when you're a scribe and nobody's ever had this process documentation automation, like we don't have a name for our category yet because it's a tool that didn't exist a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. So we're doing a bunch of, we're solving a bunch of problems in a new way. So people all have the problems. People hate SOPs. When I worked at an agency, I hated writing SOPs. I hated checking my employees' SOPs. So I searched. Or they probably wrote SOPs suck or how do I make SOPs faster or something? And that there was no tool for that before people just came up empty, but now I can go, we can be on every SOP software list, even though we're not an SOP software because we just, we can, we can be an SOP tool. So we are generating that demand, like by piggybacking off of existing demand and then showing somebody something they didn't know existed. That's the number one thing. I think you kind of mentioned it when you see 
subscribe for the first time. You went, oh man, I wish I had this two years ago. So that's what we're trying to do is get all these people that had problems for the last two years, five years, 10 years, wherever it is, and show them something new. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Like exactly like what you said, when you have an innovative tool without a category, people aren't searching for it. Maybe SEO won't generate demand for that search term out of like very easily, but there are so many problems out there that people have that you can capture the, the pain point and turn that into oh, demand. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it would be the same thing. Even if you think of like a B2C example and like that we're coming into the holiday season, someone's like best Christmas gifts for my boyfriend or whatever. And like, yeah. they might not know that this product existed, but they're looking for that, right? They're looking for something, something that, yeah. no, that they haven't seen before that their boyfriend hasn't seen. And so you can use TikTok will probably reach more people faster, but you can get onto lists like that where you can take big search volume and piggyback that into like the person already knows about Christmas. They're trying to solve for Christmas to get onto that list and like create some demand there. So it can be done. I think it's the the intent is better. So you'll have better like rates of sign up than like from a TikTok or LinkedIn post. But yeah, the, the reach will be smaller. But if you find the right search terms, you can like hit that sweet spot again. That's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Nice. We had that exact example actually you gave, but I used to work at a company that was a Zendesk app, like it plugged into Zendesk. So we wrote mm -hmm. the article, there was a lot of people searching for best Zendesk apps and it's like that, like best Christmas. And we're just- 100%. And I can't, yeah. Hello, lovely Lister. I just wanted to interrupt this episode, very annoying, I know, to plug something I actually think could be a lot of value to you. And that's the premium membership of How The Fuck. It's $8 per month. And what do you get? Well. Apart from a lot of radiant love from me, well, every, every listener is getting that anyway, you can expect the highlights of every episode of the podcast. I'll also explain extra bits, point out things like common pitfalls of following the strategies you hear on the podcast. Um, I also share templates, like recently I shared a hundred point checklist for updating your older content and frameworks for things like how to create conversion focused blog posts. You can check out the content that's already there at the How The Fuck website under the premium filter. And uh, yeah, just do it, you know, see what you think. I hope you're enjoying this episode, by the way. It's freaking great, isn't it? Anyway, back to the guest. Okay, cool. One question I wanted to ask you was, we talked a bit about like there's some keywords that you realized are much more valuable for your, in terms of, I don't know, is it yeah. like value or just sign ups and that kind of thing. Do you change your strategy around those articles? Like, do you write them a lot longer? Do you build more links on them? Like, how do you make sure you win those ones? Yeah. So we, that's a good, good question. We do a couple of things. We've now kind of changed our strategy. So we're doing just more of those articles. This is the nice thing about publishing 200 articles really quickly is we can get two a week now let's say a hundred of them aren't working right away. We have a hundred data points right away to tell us like mm -hmm. this type of keyword format and this persona or whatever it is, this is generating no signups and this is generating a ton of signups. So we basically just get to like match what's working really well and, and get that data super quickly. So if we have one format that's working well, we'll just put, we went and published instead of five of them, let's publish 50 or like let's max out as far as we can that way. So it's been just changing in the, the, the topics that we're writing. But the, yeah, from your your question, the stuff that we've already written, let's build some links to it. Let's make sure we're winning the SERPs on those. Wait, if I'm if I can only build ten links in a week, let's build those ten to the most impactful articles, the ones that are ranking in that like twelve, eight to twelve spots. We can move those into the top of the SERPs. For the ones that we've already built links to, then let's let's optimize. Let's focus on whether that's the quality, the length of the content. You know, some of the formatting might be off. We've seen a couple like with a a template article, we wrote it as a blog and everyone else on the top five had this like landing page with shorter content and the template download right up top. So let's just 
you know, reorganize the content that way to better match the intent. So it's a little bit of, there's a few different tactics in there, but it's doubling down on the actual topics that are working for us. And then, you know, really being focused. And if we only, we only have two people internal, so how do we maximize our efforts? And now that we know what works best, let's spend our time on those things instead of driving like kind of traffic to these articles that might be vanity metrics, might drive a sign up or two here or there. Let's drive the ones that are adding 10 signups a day. Let's get as much traffic <laughs> to those. We do obviously add more internal links to those as well. You know, put them on like related articles, put those as like their own CTAs. Maybe we have 500 people a week coming to an article that's not generating many signups, but that article could send more people over to our template article or something like that. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nice. That makes sense. And so are you caring most about signups? Is that your kind of goal at the moment? Yeah. So as a product like growth company, we definitely care about revenue, right? But getting somebody into the product, getting you Ben into the product and you sharing it with all your colleagues and you sharing it on whatever else, that's super impactful for us. So every user ends up being multiple users in the long run, like when you stretch uh, one person over thousands of people. So we're getting as many high quality people into the tool as possible. We're definitely looking at metrics, like how do people activate from signups? So, so different articles have different activation rates. And so that comes down to like education and things. And then some of that's the use case, but yeah, let's get people in. We do look at the, <laughs> the revenue and that's helped us to increase our budget is that we're seeing people sign up and then sign up and pay, which is a very nice thing to do without much focus there, but signups first and the revenue kind of follows. Nice. We talked about that before. In a company like the one I work for, when sales cycles six to twelve months to see to iterate and understand what's working is is next to impossible. <laughs> yeah, and we can see. So we had an article, one of our early articles that got a ton of traffic, but it was literally generating zero signups. We this is one of our first tests. Like, can we make this? That seems a little bit off from focus. Like, can we turn it into a sign up generating article? And Lauren took it, did some some of the optimizations we've been thinking about in doing. And went from no signups to one or two a week. And like, that doesn't seem like a huge deal, but when you stretch it over 52 weeks, suddenly we've gone from like a, a net negative article to a, a positive. And, but so we get to focus when we have that, that traffic and it just lets us see right away. Literally like overnight, we saw a sign up from the changes and then we saw another one the next day. I was like, okay, we were really onto something. Now let's do that in every article if we can. That's very satisfying actually. I guess one thing that we can do in like the longer sales cycle thing is in the setup is to get leads. Right, leads are sort of very early indicator, kind of a, a slightly bad one maybe. But yeah, we, we had a sort of similar situation where we had 10,000 traffic a month on one article. It was like majority of the traffic. TV. And yeah, we just tweaked it to have a downloadable template in it. And you do see like, yeah, suddenly we're getting from nothing to 200 leads in a, a month from that article. And it's sort of similar, but less less close to the product. Yeah, you still need like a whole cycle after that. You need a whole campaign <laughs> following that change. And like we can just get people in and we have a whole product team already building around that. So we can get that that person onboarded and going. And they're already using the tool. So even though they're free, they're like we're already seeing their actions in product where you're setting up a campaign over weeks or months, right? To to get people to go from downloading this template to thinking about your product and things. So yeah, it's a it's a fun one that we can see. We get so much data so quickly uh, and can see those results with a small change. Yeah, it's huge. Okay, so one thing I wanted to ask you was about the journalism stuff, your background as a journalist. How does that influence the content you create or your approach to it now at Scribe? Yeah, definitely. So 
coming from like a, a written and digital journalism background, it was learning SEO later, as I kind of said. And so for me, I mean, as a journalist, you're learning a lot of topics really quickly. You might go, you cover one topic one day, you go then research and try to write something as quickly as possible and go to other experts. So I've been a big proponent of finding those, you know, the original research data that we could use in site and really being data-driven that way for every article and at the same time finding experts. So, you know, content marketing, you do this through Harrow or through communities or something, but as a journalist, I would never turn in a story without three sources. So how do I get three productivity experts to go talk to me about productivity for Scribe, right? right? Like that's, so it's, it's using those type of tactics and kind of applying marketing techniques to make it more scalable, right? Like using Harrow instead of cold outreach to, to people. It used to be for me applying three or four levels of editing and stuff. And so to, for me, getting rid of some of those stages that were a little bit unnecessary has been unnatural. Like it doesn't need four rounds of copy editing to publish a content marketing blog. Like we can edit it in six months if we see a typo. Whereas if it's the front page of a, the Chicago Tribune, you can't edit it. So it's just been changing my mindset a little bit there, like moving a little bit faster than I uh, did as a journalist. And again, focusing focusing on things that matter. So there's been some bumps and bruises as I've shifted my mindset, but I think the two have worked really well. High research, sourcing, storytelling, like how to make things easier to read, like lowering the reading level. That's been something that's really applied. Like journalists want to write at like this sixth to eighth grade level. It's the same thing. Like let's get, make, make this a content as accessible as possible. And so that's where I think the, the two overlap really well. Do you think everyone should be doing that six to eight years of reading? Not everyone, but I think most, I think it, like almost everyone listening to this should, you know, if you're writing for devs or you're writing like data architecture type stuff, like you need to write with some more authority and use some terminology that's a little bit deeper, but for the average person, like if you're writing a, what is blog or even how this works, like people don't know what this is. You need to explain every term. It also offers a lot of opportunity for like interlinking. If you're explaining, over explaining things, you can link out to that other article. That is another like shot on goal for you. So I think it like actually plays really well to over explain and write at this lower level. But in, I mean, I tell my like intro to journalism students, this like shorter sentences offer better retention, shorter paragraphs offer more skimmability, you know, bullet points, numbered lists and things, same thing, more skimmability, easier reading, those type of things. Like we, Google wants you to get people down the page. They want people to get the answer and get out or go to the next thing. So the more you can do to make your content accessible, the better it will be for your users, which will be better in Google's eyes. Like it all just works together. So I think that again, for most people, you're going to want to write at that, that lower grade level. Definitely. I thought I wrote, I wrote about this a little bit the other day about how when it's skimmable, your headlines, or if you have a table of contents as well, you're bringing search intent as a big thing for ranking. And if sometimes people come to your article with slightly different intents, like maybe it's like the what is and why is it important? And having skimmable headlines, like you said, it's so important for them to basically be able to get to what they want quickly, scan to it. and 100%. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're coming towards the end of our time. I've got a couple of questions to finish up on. Along the way, if you had to say like top three mistakes you made and how you would avoid them, what would you, what would you say? Yeah, so at G2, which is my past stop, kind of like where I got started. The mm-hmm. the big thing was writing for, we we had this big goal of total articles written, not like what the end result was. That's was the biggest mistake we've made in our career, writing 500 articles that never right. generated traffic or revenue or anything. So just having the right goals, right? And ultimately that for your company, that's probably revenue, but it could be signups or leads or something else. But what's the purpose of each article and writing towards that and getting the distribution right? I think that's a huge one. At Scribe, we I don't I think we made fewer big mistakes, but you know, writing away from our 
our product was a big one. It just took us some time to get through that. And then, as I mentioned, we had a big batch of content that had to go. We just took time getting our CMS right. Like I didn't get the operation set up as properly from the get-go, kind of put things out of order. And that put some like undue pressure on me and other people on the team because we had content, but couldn't go because we hadn't like set the website, we hadn't set the blog up, the CMS. So just like getting the order of operations in place properly was a, was a big one. So just well, a little bit of wasted time that I wish we could go back. We'd have two more months of like growth if I had just like ordered it properly and not tried to go too quickly mm-hmm. from the start. So what CMS do you use and would you recommend it? Yeah, we're using Webflow. I like it well enough. I come from WordPress and HubSpot, so it was not a natural fit. And it's part of what caused the issues. Like, oh, every CMS is the same. No worries. And then I was not able to set it up all my myself. We had one designer and it, things just took longer than they should have because of that. So if you know Webflow, go for it. It causes no issues for us now that it's set up properly. But if you haven't used it before, it's a little bit more of a learning curve than you think for a lot of people. Nice. I've used Webflow before, so I'm like such a big fan of it. But yeah, the, the learning curve is kind of steep. Like you have to probably build a couple of websites that are rubbish before yep. you get there. 100%. Um, I, and I did that. And I needed the designer to come make things better for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So final question for you. Is there anything that we've missed today that's like the secret sauce to your success and things that you'd want to say before people embark on this journey themselves, like they need to get right? Yeah, I think we've covered a lot of it, but the big stuff like go faster. So much of, I think what is done at a lot of content marketing companies could just be stripped down. Like we, the G2 is a good example. We, the G2, we published a ton of content and a ton of it worked really well. But before I like really learned SEO, we were publishing a ton. 500 articles every half that didn't do that much. We were just writing all this content because we knew we had to write content, but there's no purpose to it. But we spent a ton of time thinking about our custom header images and all these things that just didn't matter. And now like focusing on the on-page SEO and publishing quickly and getting sources and then building links, like just doing the nuts and bolts of content works really well. So go faster is my like number one thing I've learned at Scribe and probably at the end of my time at G2, this often gets me like called out and LinkedIn by people that say like quality is the only thing that matters, but quality is so subjective. If you build a really nice process and you've got great templates to feed your writers and do the research on the topic ahead of time, you can write content that I've started calling it like a B plus article that often beats all the C minus articles that are already published. And then you optimize the ones that don't work. You build links when needed, you add a template, whatever it is, but publish faster and then go back and optimize for this type of content. Links work. People think that they don't. Like I can point to dozens of, of my articles where we built like things had stagnated. We built a link and overnight things jump. Like mm-hmm. links definitely work. There's so many examples of that. I think that those are our big ones that kind of like I'm beating the drum on on LinkedIn, right? But go faster. You can build content pretty cheaply with freelancers and nice operations. Yeah. And then really focus on on your product. What problems are you solving? That's the sweet spot for not just this PLG growth, but I think anybody, like if you know what your user's pain is, write about it and show them how you solve it. I think that's really the the sweet spot for us. Like it's not it's not that secret. People like come up and I get these founders that DM me like, what is it? What is it that you're like doing differently? It's like, we're not doing that much differently. We're just literally listening to people and then showing them how our product solves what they need help with. And if you do that, like things kind of fall into place. What posts make founders reach out and say, what are you doing? 
Is it well? Yeah, I mean, if you want to talk like LinkedIn growth, like go post your Ahrefs graphs saying we went from zero to twenty five thousand in six months, and founders say I want that. Yeah, how so and you, you know, you have that same kind of cachet, and I'm sure you get some of those DMs. But showing people like what works and having real results—that's like that's my number one thing for growing on LinkedIn—is be authentic and show people that you have credibility. Like I've done this at a couple stops. I can show people my graphs from G two, and I can show them from Scribe and a couple other things that says like. I know how to grow a domain authority. I know how to grow backlinks. I know how to grow revenue and traffic. And people want to do that because a lot of companies invest a ton of money into content that doesn't work, right? Like when I started at Scribe, we were paying an agency $10,000 a month to write five articles. And we still have those articles and they don't do anything for us. So we were paying $2,000 an article for nothing. And that's that high quality that was promised, right? But they weren't delivering on that because they hadn't researched the like the intent of the keyword properly. They didn't know who they were writing to, but they, they did put a bunch of links into like, original research. So they, they acted like they were authorities that didn't, didn't work, but so we can deliver better results by going to people that actually know what they're doing and by mm. learning what our, our target audience is actually doing, what their problems are. So I don't know, that's, that's the thing is a lot of founders are paying 10, 20, $30,000 a month for agencies that promise big things, but don't know what they're doing. So I think that that's the, the number one thing that I've seen on LinkedIn is showing people real results that, that usually yeah. catches the eye. That reminds me to put my prices up. <laughs> 100% because there are big agencies so we can talk offline that charge a ton and that yeah. don't do much. God, that's a, that's amazing. Were these articles even good? Like well-written? Or they... uh, they were fine. They were like okay. a, a, C, a C plus, B minus for $2,000. <laughs> so we we saw, I mean, this is getting out of tangent, but people linking to other, their other customers like within our content because that's they were promising those customers backlinks. Like uh, weird, shady stuff by big names that you would know. So. We, we use a freelance agency as well. Uh, just, just more like to scale the writer part. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, like every now and again, because they are also testing writers and seeing how it goes and... We get. We had one the other day that had about twenty backlinks, and clearly that writer was using was backlink building through. One hundred percent. We see it in our writers too that we hire because we're testing them so frequently. Like that's why we have to keep. We definitely keep the good ones because we can see the people that have added seven links. And you know, my editor is awesome. She comes from like a brand background, but SEO and link building aren't her background. So it's like been an ongoing teaching. So we have these two sides that work really well together. But sometimes because we're going so quickly, I'll go into old articles that she published from somebody and like, oh my gosh, that was a backlink that they built. They got paid a hundred bucks for that link, that link. And so we have to like go and remove those. And I don't think they like hurt us in the short term, but it's something that like you can see people trying to take advantage if you don't know what you're looking for. So again, if you're the founder that comes from a technical or a business standpoint and you're hiring a content agency, you have no idea what you're doing. You have a one person marketing yeah. team. So you're hiring a big name agency that can kind of get away with some of those things or even a smaller one too, right? But people that, kind of sneak stuff by because SEO is a lot of like, yeah. I don't know, there's some secretive black hat stuff going on. So you can get away with that as an agency. And so look out, like that's, that's why I think like those type of posts resonate is because people spend tons of money and yeah. have weird stuff like that happen to them without them knowing. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. It's really interesting to know. It's kind of a secret world, but until you, until you've worked, I've never worked agency side. So it's kind of interesting to see what they do deliver and everyone complains. Yeah. And there are good ones, but it's hard. It's, and it's, it really is kind of a, it's treated like a commodity. So you get people promising things and pushing back results because they, you know, SEO takes six to 12 months, they say. So they'll mm. they can kind of get a 12 month contract without ever delivering much. True. Cool. I think that's everything I've got. Question wise, that this was a really great interview. Like, thank you so much. I think it was just like action value packed. So yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, Ben. Thanks for having me. It's been great to chat on 
online on LinkedIn. So I keep, I look yeah. forward to doing more of that. But yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, we'll talk again soon. That's the end of the episode. So thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate the time you invested in this episode. Um, a few next steps. Of course, we have the premium community where you can read this strategy. Basically, you can download it and keep it forever. So you don't have to listen to this episode again or make notes. Um, also, come follow me on LinkedIn. I'm posting like lots of little extra bits and things around the podcast and, and things I've learned in SEO. So come follow me. And if you don't already, obviously subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the newsletter. Thank you.